We're going to continue our study in this Reality Check series, talking about real faithfulness. And for the most part, faithfulness is only tested when things get hard. Tested when the night is dark. Tested when the enemies are pressing in, or when the temptations are raging, or these types of things. And we can probably relate to that a lot right now, in this unprecedented time where we're facing all sorts of challenges, and that's coupled with isolation. I think we can probably understand how the disciples are feeling uh, when everything they know is about to change, where everything they trust is about to be ripped away. And in a very significant way, their metal, their personal character, their faithfulness to the one they call rabbi and master is going to be tested. And I want us to see as we look at faithfulness today, uh, what real faithfulness looks like, where real faithfulness comes from. And the hope is that we'll discover for our own lives uh, stability in the midst of the darkness and in, in the depths of difficulty. And so we're going to be reading today from Mark's Gospel, chapter 14. And before we read, remember Jesus and his closest companions, his disciples, are gathered in the garden known as Gethsemane. Jesus has warned them that uh, he's about to be betrayed and put on trial and put to death. He's told them frankly that they're all going to forsake him. And Judas has slipped off away uh, to gather the troops to come betray and arrest Jesus and start this all off. And as we read, I want you to notice that primarily three different characters come into focus. And both of them we're going to hold up to the light. We're going to study their faithfulness, or more likely their lack thereof. Um, and in doing so, uh, we'll answer this question. What is real faithfulness? So we're picking up in, Matthew, or in Mark's Gospel, chapter 14, uh, here in verse 43. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs, from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came up, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come about as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Let's pray. Father, our need uh, today is for you to illuminate this text by your Spirit. We pray that in our time of darkness, in our time of difficulty, that you would help us to see the truths contained in your word, that you would assist us in our understanding and in our application of your word, 
that we would know how we can be faithful in our lives in this time. We pray for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Three different people. First, we have Judas, and then we have the one who stood by and cut off the servant's ear, whom we know from other Gospels is Peter. And then we have this unnamed disciple who flees naked rather than being caught and sharing Jesus's fate. Three people, all of them catastrophic failures in terms of their commitment to Jesus. As Jesus had said, all of his closest fail him. They all flee. But let's take a look at them one by one because each one teaches us a different thing about faithfulness. Consider Judas. As it says here, he came and he comes with armed men who have been assembled by the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. These are the religious leaders who have been looking for a way to betray Jesus and they found what they needed in Judas. Judas was their man. He was the one that they needed to carry off their plot. But Judas was more of that. Notice as it says in verse 43, immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve. Now, if you've been reading through gospel, the Gospel of Mark, or if you've been with us, we already know Judas is one of the twelve. Mark puts it here, though, to emphasize the depth of the betrayal. To put it in the words of Jesus from a passage just before this, the one who betrays me is the one who sits and eats with me, who eats of my bread as dipped in the cup. It was the one at the very table with Jesus. It was Judas, the money keeper of his disciples, one of the 12 that betrayed Jesus. And his betrayal is so heinous. I mean, he comes and he sets up a plan so that Jesus will be identified in the dark garden so they will arrest the right man and what does he choose for his plot? He says, the one that I kiss, the one that I take hold of, the one that I embrace and kiss on the mouth, that is the one. And not only does he come and kiss Jesus, but he addresses him, rabbi, master, teacher. And yet all of these things are the exact opposite. Judas is not Jesus's friend, deserving of a kiss, but his enemy. Judas is not a devoted student of Jesus, but has sold him for 30 pieces of silver. If we ask the question, is Judas faithful to Jesus? It's, it's a silly question to ask. Of course he's not. He is the definitive example in all of history of the one who betrayed but it's important to realize where Judas's faithfulness failed. Why didn't he stick with Jesus? Why did his commitment to Jesus transition in just a brief 24-hour period? Why did he turn coat? Why did he Benedict Arnold? Why did he end up being the betrayer of Jesus? And the answer is clearly that something else was more important than Jesus was. Something else had taken priority in Judas's life. 
and we're not told about the thoughts and intentions and the motives of his heart, but it's pretty easy to look at the story and, story and discern some real possibilities. As we know, Judas was one of those who grumbled. When a woman came in and broke an alabaster flask and poured it over Jesus and complained, that could have been sold for 300 days wages and then given to the poor. And John tells us that Judas speaks that not because of his interest in the poor, but because of his interest in the money bag. You see, as the keeper, he had a tendency to dip in. He was fleecing his own pockets with the gifts that were given to Jesus. And so here, disgruntled by the loss of such a significant intake of income, he sells Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. But there are others who suggest that it's something greater than that. We know that Judas, in his background, was a zealot. One of those of the Judeans who believed that the Romans needed to be kicked out of Israel, that Israel, through uprising, needed to remove their oppressors by force. And here comes Jesus, the Messiah, the one they've been waiting for, the one who all the promises, not just of hope and salvation, but dominion and the conquering of Israel's enemies, that Messiah. But as long as he follows Jesus, he finds a different Jesus, not the one he expected, not the one he signed up for. And by the closing weeks of Jesus' life, Jesus has made very clear that he's going into Jerusalem to die and not to rule. He's not going into Rome to conquer, but surrendering himself to the religious authorities to be conquered. And it may be that that was the last straw for Judas. And the truth is, I think we all understand how this threatens our faithfulness, and not just our faithfulness to Jesus, but faithfulness as a concept. When we're disappointed, when we don't get what we sign up for, when we're after something and we make something a means to that end and that means doesn't work out, we abandon it. We try a new diet, the diet doesn't work, so we stop dieting. We sign up to be a part of an organization, the organization doesn't meet our needs, so we quit. This is the way we are, but Judas's mistake is a significant one. Because his faithfulness to Jesus, he throws away. And we don't have to wait till the resurrection to discover Jesus's disappointment. We don't have to imagine Jesus standing before Judas, alive after this great betrayal and shaking his head and going, what were you thinking? Judas doesn't make it that long. He gets everything he wants, his 30 pieces of silver, his handing over of Jesus, he gets it all. But it doesn't satisfy him. It brings him no relief, no contentment. He doesn't find what he's looking for. And my fear is that we are more prone to be like Judas than we'd like to think. I think we have a tendency to come to Jesus with our own expectations, with our own desires, and granted, the Gospels are full of requests. People come and make to Jesus. Heal me. Come and visit my child. She's dying. She's sick. 
Can you do anything for my leprosy? If you're willing, you can make me clean. The gospel is full of requests to Jesus, and over and over again, he meets them abundantly and truly. And it may be the same for you. You may have come to Jesus because you were looking for something in particular, and you couldn't find it anywhere else. But there comes a point where you have to ask the question, are you going to be committed to what it is you think Jesus can do for you, were you going to be committed to Jesus? Judas stops short of that. He's unwilling to take a curveball from Jesus. He doesn't have the humility to treat Jesus like the master that he calls him and say, maybe you don't just want to give me what I want, but change me. Maybe you don't want to just comfort me, but challenge me. And this is something that is essential for being a faithful follower of Jesus. We have to take the Jesus that we find, not the imaginary Jesus that we encounter. We have to allow the reality of Jesus to chisel away at all of our misconceptions and misunderstandings, our rough edges, our sinful tendencies, our selfishness. If we don't do so, if we don't allow Jesus to challenge us, if we're not open to the God that is, instead of our imaginary God, we will be just as swift as Judas to forsake. And the truth is, we will be just as disappointed in our forsaking. But Judas isn't the only failure here. He's the one who gets all the credit. He's the one we always talk about. But we see the same thing here with another of Jesus's followers in the following verses. And so notice what it says here in verse 47. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And so one of those who stood by, and the other Gospels tell us that it was Peter, the disciple, pulls his sword in the midst of Jesus being surrounded by these enemies and comes to Jesus' defense. He even swings out and attacks. He attacks one of the servants of the high priest and cuts his ear clean off. Now, it'd be easy to look at this and go, well, can you really say that this man that Peter here was unfaithful, he seems committed to Jesus. He's willing to defend Jesus, to do violence on Jesus's behalf. In fact, earlier in the story, Peter told us as much. He said, I'm willing to die for you, Jesus. The others may forsake you, the others may betray you, but I'm ready for what's coming. And here we see him taking action. But there's another element to faithfulness, not just sticking with Jesus, but sticking with Jesus in the ways of Jesus. Although Peter is faithful to Jesus in a sense, he's not faithful to the character of Jesus. We in no place in the Gospels find Jesus drawing a sword. We in no place in the Gospels see him defending himself. In fact, he had told the disciples that this was the plan and that he gave his life willingly, that no one would take it down from him or take it from him, but he would lay it down willingly. Peter here is defending Jesus, but he's not walking in the ways of Jesus. He's not faithful to the character of Jesus. 
He doesn't really get it. And I don't have to tell you that the same thing happens today. We see it all the time, don't we? We see those who express their commitment to Jesus and maybe even draw a sword to defend Jesus, but they don't look like Jesus. They don't act like Jesus. Their behavior makes us wonder how well they really know the Jesus they defend. And that is in and of its own self a form of faithlessness, of not being faithful. Peter is not, as he said earlier, willing to die with Jesus. He's willing to kill for Jesus. And that's not the same thing. You see, to follow Jesus means not just to be committed to him, but be committed to his ways. Not just to accept him as Savior, but also treat him as Lord. And the way of Jesus is against the grain countercultural, different. It is a way that chooses not to retaliate, a way that chooses not to defend, a way that actually cares just as much about our enemies as it does about our friends. Jesus had told his disciples over and over again things that point in this direction, that they shouldn't hate their enemy, but love them and pray for those who spitefully use them. That if somebody slapped them on the cheek, they were to turn the other cheek to them. If a Roman soldier laid a spear on their shoulder and compelled them to walk two miles, they weren't to demand their rights, but actually walk the required mile and throw in an extra one for good measure. They were to take the path of love. So why is it here that Peter is so swift to pull the sword? I think the truth is, as much as he is defending Jesus here, Peter's really defending Peter. As much as he's coming to Jesus' aid here, he's really seeking to protect himself and his interests. And there's a truth about not being faithful to the ways of Jesus that almost always, probably always, comes to be, and that's that if you betray the ways of Jesus sooner or later, you will, will deny him in total. And that's what happens with Peter. He's swift to draw the sword here, to deny the character of Jesus, but when the stakes get higher, when he's not with his other friends, when there's no other Jesus followers around, when Jesus is on trial and the night gets really dark, suddenly courageous coming to the uh, aid of Jesus, Peter isn't so courageous anymore. He denies that he even knows Jesus. He curses and swears that he's never met the man. Why? Because he's afraid. And see, that's the thing. Peter here is operating entirely, not out of faithfulness to Jesus, but out of fear. And if you want to be gracious, you could say it's fear for Jesus, but that just shows how little Peter knows Jesus. Just like the rest of us, Jesus doesn't need Peter to defend him. And the thing is, when we get caught up in this place where we defend Jesus, not for Jesus' sake, but because of our own identity, or because we are right, or because we are honestly and even quietly underneath the surface afraid of what an attack like this would mean if it landed, 
afraid of what an enemy like this would do to our faith. You see, so much of the apologetic defenses, so much of the hostile arguing that happens on behalf of Christianity doesn't reflect the character of Christ and really isn't about protecting Christianity at all. It's about preserving self. And the danger is that when we do that, we're already in a posture that leads to denying Jesus in toto and coming to the whole place where it's just too hot or too dangerous to be known as one of those who stands with Jesus. How do we avoid this type of faithlessness, this, um, this failure that Peter has here? I think the biggest one is we have to be committed to being not just in reputation Jesus' student, but actually allow Jesus to teach us. Peter was willing to defend Jesus, but he didn't do his own lessons. He was willing to stand against those who opposed Jesus, but he didn't recognize the things in his own heart that opposed Jesus.